0: Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Patman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Pierce Ali and Plumwood, let's get radical about philosophy. And this is part two of the philosophy of education with Dr. Jennifer Blesby. Now, what are some of the problems of dualism?
1: So it just relates back to stuff I was talking about last time. So one of the most famous dualisms talked about in philosophy must be mind-body dualism and uh, the idea that mind and body are separate things which leads into this problem of how do they interact then is one's physical and one's not physical, how are they supposed to interact with people? The dominant response to that now is that they're not different substances, that the mind just is the brain so it's physical as well. So I was interested in that that dualism but a whole bunch of other dualisms and it's uh, used, I drew heavily on the work by people like Genevieve Lloyd who has a book called The Man of Reason, she's an Australian feminist philosopher and that book is really well known. And she talks about all these different dualisms that are sort of assumed in our society and in our ideas of knowledge. So mind-body is one of them. Other ones, the key ones that I focus on are reason versus emotion, reason versus the imagination, reason and experience, theory and practice is another key one. And in all those sort of dualistic pairs, one category is more important than the other, and one is associated with knowledge, and the other one is often being excluded from knowledge and it's also sometimes sort of as an obstacle so if you think of reason and emotion there's an idea that reason is really important for getting us knowledge and getting us truth whereas the emotions are often presented as something that gets in the way of that like as an obstacle to clear thinking and same as imagination uh, whereas reasons really thought thought to be important to get us the truth again imagination is often seen as something that's a bit of an obstacle to that like it's associated with daydreaming and not being, in the, you know, concerned about reality and, and getting actual truth and more concerned about fancy and imagining all sorts of things that aren't true. So the problem with it, so what I argue with the problem with all these dualisms is that they're not, that's not actually accurate. When you look at what knowledge and thinking involves, it involves all of these ideas interacting with each other. So the imagination actually plays a really important role in thinking and in reasoning itself. So reason and imagination are not opposites imagination doesn't get in the way of reason, they support each other, they're completely interdependent and one doesn't work unless you've got both of them. And I use the philosopher John Dewey a lot and in his his theory of thinking or inquiry, he explains in immense detail why all these dualisms are wrong and how they're all interconnected, mind-body are interconnected, theory and practice are interconnected, um, reason-imagination are all interconnected and unless you have all of these things functioning well with it, with each other you can't really gain knowledge or meaning or anything. So.
0: Could you explain about Dewey's community of inquiry? Uh, what is your response to absolute relative dualism?
1: Yep. So that's another one of the dualisms. And so Dewey's community of inquiry is his theory about. Well, it's really. I mean, it incorporates almost. I guess every aspect. It's central to his whole philosophy, and he had. He wrote about every in every area of philosophy pretty much dealt with every philosophical problem. His community of inquiry, so it's his, it's his epistemology. It's about how you construct or gain knowledge and gain meaning. And he was really influenced by Charles Peirce, another American um, pragmatist f- philosopher who he was friends with. Peirce initially came up with this idea of, of um, communal inquiry. And it's how they basically believe it's, that's how you acquire truth. And it's how you acquire knowledge. It's also central to Jewish political theory as well. He thinks it's how societies should operate through so communal, communal inquiry. So it's basically thinking, basically people thinking together, so collaboratively, collaborative thinking. And it's also a notion of inquiry that relates back to the point I was just making before that it involves imagination, emotion, practical, actual, taking practical action to change your world, not just sitting around thinking like traditional ideas of thinking. It's, actu- it's active. It involves the body trying to transform the world. So it's a really robust notion of inquiry and they prefer collaboration like people thinking together rather than some individual just sitting around coming up with ideas by themselves and so the reason it overcomes so their so I argued that their notion of thinking and knowledge overcomes the dualism of relativism and absolutism so this is the idea that knowledge is either just getting absolute truths that are universal they're true everywhere all the time or the idea that everyone makes up their own truths and or, truth is culturally relative. There's no universal truth. What's true in one culture isn't for another. Or, even subjectivism, what's true for one person is, is not true for somebody else. And so, I think both of those notions of um, truth and knowledge are kind of dodgy and really problematic. And that what people like, the pragmatists like Julian Peirce and, and uh, Jane Adams and all those classical pragmatists from around that time. The notion of truth that they put out, which is a pragmatic theory of truth, it falls somewhere in between those two, or it, it just doesn't fall into either camp. Um, even though a lot of people interpret pragmatism as just subjectivism, it's not at all. And the, the reason for that was one of the pragmatists, William James, tried to give a version of pragmatism that was really subjective. So he said pretty much truth is whatever. If something works for you or you find it useful, <laughs> then it's true. And he was particularly talking about belief in God. So he said, in fact if it, believing in God makes your life better, then it's a true belief, which of course sounds really, you know, quite a dodgy idea. And Charles Peirce, who initially came up with the pragmatist theory of truth, didn't like that at all, and in fact was quite angry that James had given his theory of truth a bad name. So he tried to give say that he wasn't a pragmatist anymore. He's now a pragmatist, <laughs> so he tried to change the name of the theory because he thought James had sort of given uh, damaged the reputation of it. And so the real notion of sort of truth that Peirce and Dewey um, were using well, it was not the subjectivist one that um, William James had put out, but just, it was just based on some, kind of scientific inquiry. And it's very similar to what Karl Popper um, argued later on. That it was basically, you know, people would collaborate and work together to solve some problem. They'd come up with some theory. They might come up with competing theories. They would test that theory, the theories out. Whichever one worked the best to solve the problem at hand, Um, would be accepted as true in that given situation, true at that time. However, it's a fallibilist notion of truth. So they need to accept that at any point new information may arrive or new facts may be discovered or someone may come in with problems of the existing theory. You would have to accept that it wasn't true anymore and you would replace it with some new idea or new, new knowledge. So pretty much it's just a common sense notion of how knowledge and truth are, you know, how we do come up with these things in, in everyday practice. And it's neither absolutist, because it's, well, it's fallible. So you're accepting that whatever you accept to be the truth today may not be, may be proven wrong, and you maybe have to change those ideas later on. But it's not relativism either, because there are certainly wrong ideas, and it's not just saying, well, truth is whatever anybody says it is because the true theory are the ones that actually solve the problems at hand and not everything is going to solve the problem. It's quite a complex idea and it's um, widely misunderstood. But, so that was it. And that was a bit of my PhD thesis that was really difficult to write, and particularly because Charles Peirce is incredibly difficult to read and Dewey's a bit better, but he's quite difficult as well. So,
0: mm, so what is Dewey's idea of truth and meaning in philosophy for children?
1: So it's the same. So it's exactly that same idea of truth. I was just explaining then, and because Philosophy for Children was heavily influenced by um, Julie in particular, as well as Perth, it's they've pretty much adopted those ideas of truth and knowledge, and they sort of the way the classroom runs in Philosophy for Children um, really reflects that. So in the Philosophy for Children classroom, basically, kids. But the the main sort of activity Philosophy for Children is known for is. Kids sort of sit in a circle, and they'll usually read some philosophical text, but something suitable for kids. It's usually a story that has philosophical ideas embedded in it, and they might take turns reading bits of that. And then after they've read it, they'll open up the topics in that reading to discussion. So the kids are often asked questions they have about the book they've just read, and then those questions are often written up on a board, and then they take a vote on which question they want to discuss first. And then they start to have a philosophical inquiry into that question. So the book is like a stimulus material to generate philosophical discussion. So the book should contain really sort of problematic, contentious, puzzling philosophical ideas, the sorts of problems that adult philosophers deal with. There's a lot of debate about well, what's the point of the inquiry? Though, what are kids actually doing? So a key thing is that, well, one, they're giving, they should be giving, trying to offer solutions to the problems. And opinions and then defending those opinions with arguments so they're learning important inquiry skills that philosophers aim to teach and they'll learn things about like different types of fallacious thinking as well as what good arguments look like and uh, all that sort of thing but the other thing is what is the point of the inquiry though where does it go they just sit there arguing and then they end the class and that's (laughs) kind of the end of it like what's the point of it are they trying to acquire truth are they trying to solve these problems and find absolute truth at the end of it and so what I argued was, well, no, it's the Dewey and the notion of communal inquiry that they're practicing in this classroom comes from Dewey and it comes from Perth. And the idea wasn't there to find an absolute truth where everybody agreed, or it was to find workable solutions to whatever the problems were. So for the kids to come, but it's not it's not subjectivism either. So a lot of teachers interpret it incorrectly and are not practicing it well because they say things like, every kid just gets to have their own opinion and that's great, nobody's right or wrong, but that's not how it was meant to work. If, it, if it's based on Dewey and Perth, what it should be is that, you know, uh, certainly kids can have opinions and, and certainly they can be wrong and those opinions should be challenged by the teacher and other kids in the room. And so not we're not accepting that anything any kid says in the classroom is correct because it's their opinion, which would be complete relativism. What we're trying to come up with is good solutions that could be used to solve problems but at the same time like terse said they could be fallible so the community may say this you know this solution will work it will solve the problem for now or it's the best solution we've got to this issue however at any time a better solution may arise in the future or we may find out new facts or information that would make us think that this solution is actually wrong so it's that they're just integrating that pragmatist notion of truth into the into their teaching practice.
0: So could you tell us about Dewey's notion of imagination in philosophy for children?
1: Yeah. So again, it's another feature of the community of inquiry, which I mentioned before, that imagination is really central to it. So people tend to think these kids in this community of inquiry in the philosophy for children classroom are all just thinking about... It. So all the focus is on reasoning skills. They're learning to be philosophers, so it's about constructing arguments defending your opinions with reasons, criticising each other, constructing criteria, they will tend to focus on all the sort of traditional logical aspect of it. And so I was saying, well, you know, you know, drawing on Dewey again, imagination is a really important aspect of the inquiry process and so it should be a really important aspect of what kids are doing in the classroom in this community of inquiry. And so I went to, again, using Dewey and I drew out all the, the roles that imagination plays in the whole thinking or inquiry process and looked at what that meant for the classroom. So some of the things, like Wood that Dewey mentions, the, the key role of imagining, plays a really dominant role in inquiry. For one, if he says thinking, or all inquiry starts when you've got a problem, yeah. some problem that you don't know how to solve or what to do with it. That's the start of all thinking. And what you want to do is kind of solve that problem or figure out some way to work with it. And so the first thing you want to do is imagine the problem that's different to what it is because it's a problem. So you want to think about, well, what would it look like if it was solved? What am I trying to achieve here? So you want to imagine the problematic situation that's different to how it is. So imagination comes in immediately in an inquiry. As soon as you've got a problem, you've got to think about, well, I want this to be different to how it is because it's problematic. So the first thing kids need to do or anybody engaged in an inquiry or problem-solving process is imagine things different, imagine things being not problematic anymore. And that actually sets the goal, or sets an aim for your inquiry. So then what you're trying to do is come up with solutions or ideas that will help you realise this, imagined possibility. So that's one key way in which the imagination functions in, in inquiry, then there's a whole bunch of other roles it plays too, especially in like, because inquiry is meant to be collaborative, they say, you know, well, if you're supposed to collaborate with others, you need to be able to understand other's points of view. So imagination plays a really important role there in terms of empathy. So you need to sort of be able to empathise with other people, imagine what they might be thinking or feeling, try and understand why they think the things they do. And so, again, imagination plays a key role in that aspect of inquiring, understanding others.
0: And you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to... Dr. Jennifer Blesby, about the philosophy of education. What is your view on reason, emotional view, dualism?
1: Yep. So, and so, the, so the last point I was talking about was focusing on imagination, reason, dualism. And so I was, my emphasis then was people know that reason plays an important um, role in inquiry, but imagination tends to be overlooked a bit. And so, I really focused on looking at what role does imagination play in inquiry, and then what does that mean for teaching as well? What what does it mean then for how you educate children, and what important role does imagination play in schooling? So it's the same. Uh, reason and emotion has the same same thing. So there's a lot of focus on reasoning in traditional notions of knowledge and inquiry, and there's a lot of um, focus on, oh, but there's not much focus on emotion. So. Emotion tends to be sidelined a bit, or not considered as important. So, in both in terms of thinking processes and knowing, and that has a flow-on effect for schooling as well. So, there's tends to be more focus on thinking, less focus on imagination and emotion. Or where they are focused on, it'll be in particular subject areas. Like people think, well, the emotions—that's something you might look at in maybe English a bit, or you know, health and stuff where you're concerned about emotional development and well-being but it's got nothing to do with, like, mathematics or science or things like that. And so, again, drawing on Dewey, um, I argued that the emotions are a central part of all thinking and inquiry, and so that doesn't matter what subject you're talking about. So even if you're doing stuff in science or maths or history, all good thinking involves the emotions come into it just as the imagination comes into it. Uh, Again, so I drew uh, drew on John Dewey to look at that because he argued the same thing, and so he had a really developed theory of the emotions that and um, that was connected to his idea of thinking and it's really it's quite complex he drew on uh, charles darwin and both and the notion of um a theory of imagination from william james who was one of his friends as well and he kind of integrated the two and or improved on both of those theories and his focus was really looking at the fact that emotions always have a sort of reasoning component to them that there's always a sort of cognitive aspect to them as well. It's not just physical feeling or something that's not very useful. And so he talked about things like this is an idea that Aristotle had as well that you know to have an emotional response to some situation involves making a judgment. It always involves reasoning of some sort. So if I you know am upset by something or something makes me angry, that's probably because I've made a judgment that perhaps it's unfair or it's immoral or it's wrong in some way, or it's bad. And so there's always some sort of judgment and thinking going on there. So the idea that emotion is somehow opposed to thinking is quite a strange idea that they're actually integrated. And so again, in, so when you're trying to work through problems or conduct any thinking process, the emotions are really useful there um, because they help you work out how to respond to things, like formulate judgments about stuff. If you're feeling a certain way about something, it's giving you some important sort of information about how to respond to it. And it, so therefore, it's really important that children in classrooms too are able to express emotion, reflect on their emotions and what they mean. Think about whether their emotions are actually, whether they're rational or are they irrational. Are they useful? Can they use them to guide their practice and how they solve problems? And so all that's come out of emotional intelligence. So responding to things in an, in, a, in an intelligent way so that your emotions are useful and not a destruction and... So, and what how schools should be integrating that more into um, their teaching in different subject areas.
0: Right so how do classroom communities of philosophical inquiry support effective e-learning?
1: Uh, so this isn't like, so again it's not a huge focus area of mine, but I ended up writing a little bit about this because you know, I had to do a course as a part of my job as a lecturer at Monash University I had to do some training in how to teach it at the higher education level. And a lot of the focus on that was about using different technologies to teach with, so all sorts of e-learning, like having classroom discussions in an online mode and uh, all this sort of stuff. And I started to read the literature a bit around that stuff and was surprised at how a lot of it was making comments about how great technology was and how educational it was and saying things like the Internet's just naturally educational because it means people can be exposed to diverse opinions and ideas from all over the world. Therefore, it's it's a good thing and it's just naturally going to lead to people being more educated. And Also, uh, a common claim they were making was that the internet is more educational as a learning tool than traditional teaching, because with the internet, it encouraged creativity, because anybody could construct their own ideas and put them online, and everybody could publish, and it's really creative, whereas traditional teaching is all about listening to the teacher. And just taking in information so it's really passive whereas the internet with all of creativity and technologies allow people to be creative and active participants in shaping the world and so i just had to think that was a bit that was an odd view. that was kind of a, it was really one-sided view that a lot of people were putting forward in the literature because while the technology can do those things it can also help do the opposite so there's can be for all the good parts of it it depends a lot on how people use it people can also use it for really problematic things So, for example, it might enable people to be exposed to all sorts of different opinions because you can get online and connect with people all over the world. However, the Internet also allows you to just get online, seek out people very much like you, wherever they are in the world, and just limit your communication to those people. So I might be like a neo-Nazi, and I don't know many neo-Nazis in my neighbourhood who can reinforce my views, but now I can get online. I can find these people all over the world, create a little community, and basically just have people feed my own values and views back to me. So it might reinforce my views rather than expose me to diverse opinions because I can be more selective about how I, who I interact with. And so, and the same as the other sort of problem about, oh, will the internet enables you to be more creative and to construct your own ideas rather than just taking information in? Quite a few philosophers of education have actually criticized that idea because, well, of course, one of the key problems with things like the internet is Precisely that, that anybody can go and put anything on there. It doesn't involve, there's not a lot of checking or it doesn't necessarily involve critical thinking or any creativity because I can pretty much sit down and put any old opinion on there. I don't have to think a lot about it. I might get some criticism back from others, but I might not. (laughs) Uh, And the other problem with it it is that the wealth of different opinions and views out there can actually make critical thinking hard because people just don't know. You know, they're just overwhelmed with so much different opinion. They can't sort through all the junk and figure out what's good ideas and what isn't. So so then I started to look at, you know, again, how could Philosophy for Children respond to this? And Philosophy for Children, with its community inquiry approach, could actually help respond to some of those issues. Because, again, I mean, teaching ethics is a key part of it, so they could be looking at stuff like ethical use of the internet and all the problems with it but also because it fosters things like critical thinking so it really encourages kids to sort of be they can apply that to the stuff they're using when they're online. Those critical thinking skills can be really useful there because it helps them sort through information, compare conflicting ideas, evaluate them, think about what's good and what's not and so if you've got those critical thinking skills you can apply that to your use of technology but the technology in itself doesn't mean people are using it in a critical way. You've still got to have the good thinking skills. Um, and also it's the same thing with the focus on community in philosophy for children. It's about you know, that, that idea of listening to other people in the classroom, sitting in a circle, listening to others' ideas, responding to them in an appropriate but critical way, asking for opinions and judgments and uh, arguments to defend opinions and, that, and sort of defending your own ideas to, to others or at least explaining them changing your mind, if people give you good reason to, all those sorts of things are practices that would, if you took those online and use those sorts of practices in your online communication and use of the internet, then it could be really educational and effective. But the point is, you have to get, kids have to develop those abilities first. And, and it's not obviously that just using the internet would lead to those being developed. They need to be taught in other ways and the community of inquiry could sort of help with that.
0: Could you explain about the reconstructing gender in philosophy for children?
1: So all the things that I've mentioned pretty much uh, were tied into sort of, all come back to feminist philosophy, which is one of the things I started when I looked at philosophy for children. I mentioned I could see really strong links between philosophy for children and feminist philosophy. And so all these different things I've talked about, like overcoming imagination, reason dualism, overcoming emotion, reason dualism, All those things were aims of a lot of feminist philosophers as well. The reason being that they could see all the sort of things or ideas that were excluded from knowledge or traditionally excluded from schooling also tended to be associated with femininity or women. So, you know, reason was really important or always really valued, but the emotions and imagination always been a bit sidelined or the emotions and the imagination are more associated with femininity. For reasons really associated with dominant ideas of masculinity, same as the body is associated with women, whereas men are thought to be more associated with the mind or mental activity. So if philosophy for children and um, John Dewey and all these people I use a lot, if they really do a lot of work of challenging all those sort of dualistic pairs and saying, well, mind-body aren't opposed and reason and imagination aren't opposed and the emotion plays a really important role in knowing it's not separate to it. and it's not an obstacle to it. It kind of helps break down these gender categories as well. So it really challenges this assumption, these stereotypes, that women are all emotional and imaginative and, and all about the body and reproduction, that sort of stuff, whereas men are all about rational thoughts and stuff. If you're saying, well, actually, those, those dualisms don't exist at all, everybody needs both reason and imagination and emotion and, and uh, physical bodily abilities as well as mental capacity and they're all interacted it really challenges this idea that there's masculine attributes that are, ma- that are superior to feminine ones and if philosophy for children is challenging that in the way it teaches um then it's helping break down those um, traditional gender categories
0: yeah that's a really good point well thanks very much for coming onto the program today it's okay i've been speaking to dr jennifer leesby about yes. the philosophy of education